0: down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leopard came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, on a, on a morning that's pretty chaotic with a brand new setup, a brand new space. Um, if it looks like we don't know what we're doing this morning, it's because we don't know what we're doing um, this morning. We would love your suggestions or thoughts if you feel like we've missed something. Um, but it feels like a big mistake for me to, uh, to go political in my intro to the sermon, um, but that's what I'm going to do. So here we go. Um, no judging, all right? But, but we are, we're in uh, one of the most interesting elections in my lifetime, at, at least, And so we in Kansas and our Missouri neighbors voted in the presidential primaries here in the last couple of of weeks. And it's been fascinating, especially to see politicians, pundits, social commentators really be unsure, like, what's happening um, to our political system right now. Like, you just see the befuddled looks on their faces as they try to explain everything that's going on. One of the more interesting explanations to me came from a guy named Michael Ramsden. He's from Britain. Um, he spoke at our Leawood campus a couple weeks ago. And here's how he uh, gave his take as someone from outside our country on our current political climate. He says if, if our culture cares about anything today, if we had one rule that, that most of us try to follow or most of us seek to follow, it's that we're to be true to ourselves. Right? Whatever your desires are, whatever your hearts are, whatever your passions are, you're to live those out, to do those and not, not hold them back. And so that's our, our one law. If that's the one thing we're supposed to do, then the one thing that we can't do, the one thing you shouldn't do, the biggest sin our culture thinks that it exists is, is for you to, to hide those feelings or to hide those desires or those passions. Right, Our chief sin is hypocrisy. And so you enter that climate into our election. It explains a great deal of what's going on. Right, now, did it, did it at least appear that our current election is less about political left versus political right and more about establishment versus anti-establishment? The Rams said our, our political establishment, they have, they have all the political power. They have the, the power, the influence, or the influential circles in our, our culture. And yet, they're perceived as being hypocrites, as having ulterior motives. Right? They're perceived as not being honest about what they really want to do, what they really think, what they really believe. We're not sure what our politicians really think about the world. And so they, they just say what they have to say to get people to vote for them, right? That, that, that if you have power, you can't really be yourself. You can't really say what you really think because to do that would actually potentially compromise your power, your influence. And so they're guilty of our chief sin, hypocrisy. Whereas those of them of the anti-establishment, they don't have power, right? So they're, they're perceived to be honest, right? They're just telling it like it is because they're, they're not in the system. They're outside the system. So they can just speak... Their are So they're living out our one true law. Be who you are. Say what you think, right? Deliver what the message you, you feel like ought to be delivered. And so that's why we're so into this anti-establishment moment is that they're, they're tapping into that cultural desire to, to be true to yourself. Now, I have no idea if that analysis is right, and it is certainly not an endorsement of anti-establishment polit- political figures. But it's the least interesting, right, this tension that if you're a person of power, you can't really be honest, You can't really be true to yourself. Because you have to to conceal a part of you because you need people to vote for you. You need people to like you. You need people to to keep you in power. But if you're not in power, if you have no power, if you have no authority, well, then you could say what you really think, what's really on your your mind. You're not withheld. You're not held back. That tension between having power, keeping it, and being true to yourself is an interesting tension, especially when you begin to apply it to the the passage we're in this morning, all of Matthew chapter 8. Because there what you'll find is, is Jesus doesn't have that problem, that he has all power. And Matthew goes to great lengths to, to show that to us. He has all authority, and yet he, he doesn't really care what you think of him. He's true to himself. He just lays it out there regardless of the response that he gets, that he has power, but he has no interest in protecting it or pandering to get people to like him. And so that we see this worked out in, in three ways in Matthew chapter 8. The, the first, that Jesus is not going to meet your expectations. Uh, two, Jesus does have all authority. And three, his authority is, is good. So let's start with the fact Jesus, listen, he's not going to meet your expectations. And, and to get into that, we, we need to go back to Matthew 4.17, which is where Jesus began his public ministry. And if we were to send up, to, to just boil down Jesus' entire message into one sentence, it'd be Matthew 4.17. Repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after Matthew 4, we spent the last 11 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus laid out what life in his kingdom looks like, right? His, his whole message is, come and join my kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. Looks like, and now in Matthew 8, Jesus is kind of, he's out on, he's out on the trail, right? Not, not totally unlike our, our campaign season where he's out among the people saying, listen, I have a kingdom, join it, come and be a part of the kingdom I'm, I'm bringing in to the world. And yet, Jesus is also nothing like our campaign season. Because he does not care if you like him. He does no pandering in this, verse, in this chapter. Jesus, his interest is not in whether or not you like him, admire him, he wants you to follow him. He doesn't care if you like him. He will not meet your expectations. You notice the, the, the arc of Matthew chapter 8. The verse 1 was, was, was this, that when Jesus came down from the mountains, great crowds followed him. Lots of people are following, following him. Lots of people are interested in him. And then did you hear the last verse? And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave. The chapter starts with crowds following Jesus, and it ends with them going out to Jesus to tell him to go away. Now, what's happening between those 34 verses? What is going on in this chapter? Well, Matthew 8 is broken down into six scenes. And in those six, six scenes, a number of things happen. In scene one, which we read, is, is Jesus heals a leper. Right? What seems like a promising start to announcing a kingdom is, is this miraculous act's a feeling, but Jesus does two things here that he should not have done. The first one is he actually, he actually reaches out and physically touches the leper, which you didn't do because you could, one, you could attract leprosy yourself. It was a very um, um, very dangerous disease in that day. Or, or two, you just, lepers were just th- people you didn't touch, right? They were people you looked down upon. They were people you walked on the other side of the street from. You didn't go and touch them. And so Jesus does two things that would have instantly alienated him from the people around him. But the other thing he does is he tells the leper, hey, I don't want you to tell anyone what happened, which is the exact opposite of, of us or our political candidates, right? We tend to overemphasize what we've accomplished to make ourselves look better than we actually are, whereas Jesus is saying, don't tell people about my best. Don't tell people what I'm doing. Like, imagine if Donald Trump had healed a leper, how many times he would have told us already, and yet Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Why? Well, the next scene, Jesus is approached by a powerful member of Roman society, a centurion. And the centurion comes to Jesus because his servant is paralyzed back home. And so Jesus has this incredible moment to get into the powerful part of society, to Roman military leadership, to inject himself into influential circles. But what happens is the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you actually, you don't have to walk all the way to my house to heal my servant. You are... I know you, you're so powerful you could do it with a word right now, you could heal my servant. And so again, Jesus does two things that would have completely alienated everyone around him. First, he does heal the servant from a distance. He does not go to the centurion's house, and he does not leverage this moment to get himself into influential circles. He just heals the guy, it's over. But secondly then, he, he insults everyone around him. That after, he, after the centurion says this, to Jesus, says, You can heal my servant with, with your very words. Jesus says, Your faith is incredible, and I don't know a single person in Israel who has faith like you. I mean, it salts all the Jewish people around him. Like, none of these people have faith like you. So again, Jesus is, He's doing amazing work, and yet He's alienating everyone around Him. Well, the final scene, the other scene that we read, was the scene where Jesus heals these two demon-possessed men. And what happens when he heals them is he sends the demons into the pigs. The pigs then run into the the sea and drown, which would have ruined a farmer's economy, would have ruined maybe even an entire community's local economy, which is why they come out to Jesus and say, Jesus, leave. You're doing more harm than good. That Jesus seems to be intentionally sabotaging his own efforts to get people to join his kingdom. So, why? What's he doing here? Well, the center or the most important answer to that question comes in, in scene four of the six scenes here in Matthew 8. And maybe some of you, you watch Sesame Street where they have a little, a little deal where they say, one of these things is not like the other. Right? Well, in, in these six scenes, one of the scenes is not like the other. Right? Five of them, they're miraculous healings, they're Jesus displaying his great power. And then there's one scene, scene four, that's different than the rest. Verse 19. And a scribe came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. But what's going on there, right? Jesus has these two people. That they seem to actually want to follow him And yet Jesus doesn't seem particularly interested in helping them follow him, like making it easier on them. It's like Jesus makes it as difficult as possible for them to go and follow him. And I've heard a number of Christians try to explain this away. Like, oh, it's not, Jesus didn't really be in that adversarial there. But he, he actually, he kind of is. He's saying, listen, I don't care what, what's going on in your life. Essentially. I, I, don't, I don't care what's happening to you. I want you to follow me. Period. Period. That He's not going to pander to you, to get you to come after him. It's, it's take it or leave it with Jesus. He doesn't want you to like him. That's not, what, that's not why he came. He didn't come to get you to admire him or think he's great. He came to get you to follow him, to worship him. And that explains this chapter. Why Jesus appears to be making intentionally really bad decisions throughout, why he touches a leper, why he seems more concerned with healing these two possess, demon-possessed men than an entire local economy. Why he, he just seems disinterested in getting into Roman powerful circles? It's because he's come to get us to follow him, not to like him. He's come to bring his kingdom. And because he's bringing a kingdom, we have to meet his expectations. He's not going to meet ours. And so before we move on, that's, I think a question worth asking for all of us is where, where is Jesus failing your expectations? Is there a command he expects you to follow that you don't want, you have no interest in? He thinks too much, it's unreasonable. Are you expecting Jesus to do something to intervene in your life in some way he's not? Now, how has Jesus disappointed you? Because when you read chapters like this, it doesn't seem like it's a matter of if Jesus is going to fail to meet your expectations, but when. And in that moment, it's a reminder listen, that's not why he came. He didn't come to prove himself. To you he came take him or leave him and the reason that, that that's the way this is presented is because Jesus has all authority right he, do, he doesn't have to, to pander to meet your expectations like a politician because he already has all power all authority throughout Matthew 8 that's really the two main points of this chapter one Jesus listen he is not going to pander to you and secondly he has All authority. So when Jesus heals the man with leprosy, it's with his touch. Like just with a touch of his hand, Jesus takes leprosy away from a person. That with the word of his voice, he heals paralysis from the centurion's servant. And and, and when the, the demon possessed hear Jesus' voice, they're terrified of it. They're terrified of him. Then Matthew is intentionally saying, listen, Jesus has an authority like you've never seen before And I realize for us, in our age, right, we hear these stories, we think, that didn't happen. I've never seen, you know, demon pigs drown themselves, and I've never seen, like, a leper get healed with a tongue. I've never seen this. Science can't explain that. But And listen, I understand that, but I, but I do want us to be careful here. There's a tendency, I think, to read accounts like this and just think, these people were stupid, like, we're really smart, we have science, they didn't. And they just explained everything, like, with science, or everything with supernaturally, if they didn't have a scientific explanation. But... Listen, maybe Matthew's wrong, he's lying, whatever. I don't think that works for two reasons. One is that Matthew understands these things don't happen all the time. That's why he's writing them down. Right? He doesn't see leprosy get cleansed with just someone's touch. He doesn't see a demon-possessed man be healed and then watch pigs go, a herd, just drown themselves in a lake. Right? Matthew didn't watch that and think, boy, demon pigs drowning themselves. That's the third time I've seen that this week. Right? Matt, That's not what's going on here, okay? Matthew knows what's happening here. You don't see every day, which is why he wrote it down. He, listen, dismiss him, say he's lying, whatever, but Matthew, who wrote within 30, 40 years of Jesus' death, who followed Jesus himself saying, listen, I've seen something that you've never seen before. Jesus, he has an authority that I've never seen a human, human being have. But Matthew isn't just... Listen, he's not just not naive or gullible, he's also trying to make a theological point with with these stories, with these accounts. Then at one point in the middle of Matthew chapter 8, the the third scene in in the chapter, there is described this great number of people who were sick and need healed and they, they were broken, just gathering around Jesus. You know, a picture of a refugee camp, a clinic set up in the middle of it. People just flocking to him. That's the, the, the scene that Matthew describes for us. And when, when we get to, he says, Jesus healed all of these people. And when we get to the end of the scene, G, or Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 of Jesus in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 8. He says this, he says, this was to fulfill what the, the prophet spoke to Isaiah, or what, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He, the Messiah, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. See, Matthew knew if you got leprosy, you died. There wasn't a healing for leprosy. He knew that. He knew in that day, listen, if you got sick and you were on your deathbed, you most likely weren't getting off of your deathbed. If you were paralyzed, you were not going to get up and walk. Matthew knew that. He wasn't stupid. But he's saying, listen, there is, Jesus came, and he took our illnesses, our griefs upon himself. He healed us. Do you really think Matthew was just that gullible or naive? Like he thought there were were just lots of people who could heal leprosy or or cure paralyzed people for walking with just the command of their voice. Matthew is insisting here that Jesus is not like any other human being you've ever seen. He has an authority like you have never seen. And he has the right to look at you and to look at me and say, follow me doesn't matter what else is going on. Doesn't, that, doesn't matter what you think you have to go and accomplish. It doesn't matter what you think is unworkable. If you were to come and follow me, all of that's irrelevant. I have all authority. Come. Come, follow me. And one of the, the simultaneously best and worst things of being a dad to young kids is getting to read for them. All right, so sometimes it's great because they pick out great books like, like Where the Wild Things Are. Right? And other times they pick out really terrible books like Bambi or, or other books. I have to read the whole thing. Right? And, and there's one book it's really annoying because like there's, there's one or two pages where like it's, it's great illustrations and there's little text. And then you get like the, every third page is like, just like 100 paragraphs. And it's like a two-year-old can't sit through this. right? It's just text on a page. It's really annoying. So it took me a long time to get through this book. But finally I got, I got through it. And it's a book is was written in the 1940s called, called Toodle. Right, in the book, it's about a young train that, that wants to grow up and be a big, powerful train that, that goes really fast distances called the flyer. And so that, that's its hope. And so this young train, Tootle, it goes to train school to learn how to grow up and be a, a big flyer. And so the book, right, it, it says this young train had to, tr- to go to all these classes and learn all these things. But the one thing the train, young Tootle had to learn above all else was the class, the lesson, stay on the rails no matter what. That's the only thing you got to learn. Stay on the rails no matter what. Well, it doesn't take long before Toodle ignores that lesson, and and it's chasing a black horse, and it hops off the rails, and it chases the horse through the meadow, and it starts happening every day. It's jumping off the rails to go play in the meadow, play in the flowers, the bugs, whatever, and so that Toodle just begins hopping off the rails, and so the the conductor, the leader of the, the school realizes Tootle will never become a flyer if he keeps doing this. And so he, he finds a way. This is part of the disturbing part of the book, but he, he like kinda lies and tricks Toodle to get him back on the rails, and it works at least. So it worked. Toodle gets back on the trail, or on the, tr- the tracks. He stays on the rails no matter what. He grows into the flyer, he becomes the train he wants to be, and that's the lesson in the book. Stay on the rails no matter what. It's an interesting story, but it was written in 1945, which was a very different day than, than us. And so I just sort of Googled Toodle and just to see what people think of the book now. And, and normally I would never encourage reading internet comments, but this time I made an exception because it was kind of interesting to read what people thought of this book now. And my favorite was someone who wrote about this book. And actually, they, were, like, they, they used some strong language, which I, I won't use, but they basically said, listen, we got to take every copy of Toodle, burn it, burn all of them except for one, to put in a museum to show how messed up people used to be, right? Like this idea of like, if you tell someone to stay on the rails no matter what, this poor train, little, little toodle just wanted to play in the meadow and you told him not to, how sick are you, right? That's, that's sort of the way that our culture looks at this book, right? Because if we have one rule, one law, it's be true to yourself, right? It's if you want to hop off the rails, hop off the rails, like do whatever you have to do to make yourself happy, to live into your desires. And here comes this book, toodle. It says, no, stay on the rails no matter what. Which is very similar to what Jesus is saying here. Right? Listen, you have to live like this. Right? And the guy's like, but I have to, Jesus, I have to bury my father. Right? Which seems like a, a good reason to hold off on following Jesus. And Jesus says, I, don't worry about that. Follow me. Stay on my rails no matter what. And I realize you hear that and you think, Tim, that's, that's childish, right? Like you're, you're using a children's book to illustrate the Bible. And I get that. Listen, I'm, I have to read these books all the time, so I'm going to make you suffer with me for a few minutes, all right? <laughs> but but that, this is what Jesus is saying. This is what he's saying to you here in Matthew chapter 8. Right? If, if you look at him and say, look, I'm not doing that, Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to follow you. He's says, that's fine. Live off the rails. Enjoy your world of grief and sorrow and burdens and illness and sickness, all of that. Enjoy it. I've come for you to follow me, not to like me. Come and stay on my rails. Live on my rails. Jesus, he offers all of us a choice. Follow him, live on his rails. Or live in a grief of sorrow and burden and grief. Those are his terms, and we want to adjust them. right? Sort of like the scribe in verse 19, we like Jesus, we admire him, he's he's an admirable figure. I think most people in our culture, whether they they think Christianity is true or not, they'd at least look at Jesus as an admirable figure, and yet Jesus isn't interested in your admiration. He doesn't want it. He wants you to follow him. He actually wants you to worship him. Which raises a question for, for all of us. Do you, do you admire Jesus? Do you like him? Or do you follow him? As Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher who lived in the 1800s, said this about the distinction between just admiring Jesus and actually following him with your, your life. Here's what he said. To want to admire instead of to follow Christ is not necessarily an invention by bad people. No, it's more an invention by those who keep themselves detached, who keep themselves at a safe distance. The admirer admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. And though in a word he is inexhaustible about how highly he prized Christ, he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. I love that last line, that that he will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. What what Kierkegaard is really saying is is that's actually a sign you don't actually admire Jesus. If you're not living on his rails, you don't actually admire Jesus if you don't follow him. Because here's the deal. You are on the rails of whatever you love most. And that track is going to lead you wherever it goes. (laughs) And what Jesus says is is common, reconstruct your life around me. And so have you. Is your, your admiration of Jesus just a safe distance? Or have you embraced him fully and reconstructed your life? Made hard, intentional decisions that look very differently because you follow him. Right? It's not just admiration. It's not just... An appreciation, it's not just that you like him, you actually have reconstructed your life around him. And if Matthew is right, Jesus has the right to ask this of us. The right to make absolute demands on our lives. So, which raises the question, okay, why should we we let him? Right, if Jesus isn't going to meet our expectations, right, he's not going to prove himself to us, but he has all authority, why should we why should we live in his rails? And, and I think it's because his authority is good, and that comes out in so many ways in Matthew chapter 8. The here to me is what's so liberating about the gospel, about the central message of Christianity. It's, it's that Jesus does not need anything from me. He doesn't need anything from you. Right? He has all authority. There's, like, you cannot bring something to him that he did not already have. So he's not, he doesn't come asking us to follow him to complete him. He doesn't need us. And yet, look at all that he offers us. He comes to bear our griefs and bear our sorrows, to heal us, to make us new, to save us. And here's the thing about Jesus taking all our illnesses, all our griefs on. I I hope you don't picture Jesus as just coldly off in the distance saying, be healed, be healed, right? The only way you can take people's griefs and sorrows is to begin to feel that suffering yourself, right? Ask any good counselor to be very careful about how many caseloads they take on because when you care for people, you begin to suffer along with them, right? Ask any good doctor and you—you you, the best, the most difficult surgeries take hours. It's exhausting. To heal as a doctor can be a physically exhausting process. For Jesus to come and bear our griefs and sorrows is not something he does passively from a distance. It's something he takes himself. And if you were to read the whole context of what, Jesus, or what Isaiah says about this Messiah figure, this Jesus whom he said would come, if you were to read the next line after Jesus, after the one that Matthew quotes, here's what it says in Isaiah. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Here's the next verse. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It's almost like Isaiah says, Jesus so takes on our griefs and sorrows, we actually turn on him. We look at him and see our own patheticness revealed back to us. Which is exactly what happens in Matthew 8, right? Jesus comes, he heals. He actually heals demon-possessed men. And what what does the village come out and do? They say, go away. Leave us. And yet Jesus kept pursuing us anyway. Maybe the most evident or best example of that is, is this Sunday, Palm Sunday, Right, we're entering into Holy Week as a church. And Palm Sunday was the Sunday Jesus entered at Jerusalem to to the, the shouts of Hosanna from crowds as they waved palms. Convinced that someone had come to finally be the king they had longed for. And then Jesus let them down. He wasn't the king they longed for. And so they turned on him. But Jesus didn't leave town that time. Instead he went to a garden and prayed and waited for us to come and arrest him. That we, human beings, went to arrest the one who came to bear our griefs and sorrows. Because Jesus wasn't done bearing our griefs and sorrows. There was more work to do. That Jesus didn't just come to heal our physical ailments, to heal the diseases, our paralysis or our leprosy. He came to provide a far deeper healing than that. And when Isaiah presses on in his description of the work of the Messiah, it's not just about a Messiah who bears our griefs and our sorrows, even though we look at him and consider him stricken. He goes a step of healing beyond that. And here's what Isaiah says next in that passage. He says, we all, all of us human beings have gone astray like sheep. We've turned every one of us to our own whales, right? We've, we've hopped off the rails and gone our own way. And so the Lord laid on him, laid on Jesus the iniquity Of us all. All Right, we turned on him, we asked him to go away, leave us alone, and and what does Jesus do? He takes not just not just our griefs and our sorrows, but our iniquity, our dirtiness, our shame, our guilt. He takes all of it. The one with all authority in the world takes everything broken from us. So, how could we not live for him? Who has a better authority than that? Who uses his power? who uses his, his limitless cap- capabilities to take everything that was, that's broken and wrong about us off of us, onto himself. That are you really going to have a richer life following your own desires, following your own life, following your own dreams? Is, it, is that a better rail to live on than the rail of someone who has all authority and all power and could thumb his nose in you, and yet he doesn't. He comes, he takes your griefs, your sorrows, your shame, and takes it on himself. How could you not... Live for him. How could you not reconstruct your life around him? He didn't just die for you. He rose to new life for you. He has all the authority in the world, and yet he uses it to die for you, to save you, to save me, to give us new life. That's the irony at the heart of the gospel. You have nothing to offer Jesus, nothing, and yet he offers everything to you. That there is no one in this world who needs less from you than Jesus. But there is no one who will offer you more. Let's pray. God, could we now receive that offer that Jesus gives to us? That he came with all authority. God, he healed leprosy with a touch. He cured paralysis with a word. Sent out demons with his voice. And God, we so often come before you and want to negotiate terms with you. We want to we wanna redirect your commands. We want to we wanna do life on our terms. God, forgive us of that foolishness, that silliness. And would you help us now as we sing to be enthralled with your, the, the goodness of your authority that you used all that you have to come and take all that's wrong with us on yourself to heal us and make us right. I drive that deeper into our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.